Well, shall we get started and pray? Merciful Father, we come before your throne today, and we're so thankful that we're able to gather in this time to study your word and talk about your history. We also thank you, Lord, for the the blessings you've given us in your Son. I ask you to illuminate our minds and help us all to be patient and gracious. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Yeah, and so by way of introduction, I have to say this is one of those moments where you go, I'm truly not the most learned man in the room. And so I'm going to ask for your uh, gracious uh, help in improving me, but uh, I just humbly thank you for letting me try to do this. And by try, I mean it's not the done yet. It will be done later. But uh, in any case, I do want a discussional class because there are so many people in here that I know have studied so many elements of church history that there's no possible way that a single person, unless he was truly a professor, could probably do it justice. And so for me, it all started back with an, inter- an interest in Fox's Book of Martyrs. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that book, but it is a, an older story of the martyrdom of the church. And it is a uh, somewhat graphic and sometimes uh, look at the early church. And so, in many ways, as a young guy, it was like, hey, this is comic books without the comics, only it's for a horrible reason, and I'm not sure I was fascinated, but I was. And so, uh, in any case, for the next several weeks, uh, we're going to be wandering through, fairly quickly, the early church, and trying to get toward the actual American church, because what my interest had lied in a bit was how did I get here from where I started and many of us did not start as Presbyterians many of us didn't even start as uh, Christians I mean most of us honestly we may not have come from a Christian home and and found our way through the Spirit's uh, work to someplace and ultimately to here and so for this class I thought well I'll cover a lot of ground most of you may have already heard many times but if you have something that I forgot or missed, please bring it up. Because again, if it's just a one-way discussion, classes may be really short. But uh, if you have a comment, by all means, I have not packed this class for sure with too much detail in an effort to do that. So I wanted to start out with why study church history. And many of us may not have liked history when we were in high school. I loved European history. But I was not overly interested in American history until later. Again, I think it had something to do with that Knights of the Round Table type stuff. But uh, in this case, we want to study our Christianity and our history of it because it actually gives us a concrete demonstration of that historical character of our faith. We have a unique offering in our beliefs based in historicity. It is actual events by eyewitnesses beyond our own book of beliefs. So outside of our own book are many other authors writing about pieces of our history. And so I think that that in and of itself gives us a very unique uh, opportunity to, to have not only the, the belief of what we have that we're saying, but also the ability to learn and have model people behind it. And so it kind of uh, 
we see this history in action, basically, by the Lord giving us the Ten Commandments. When he, he did that in consequence to his own actions in history. And so, as a form of narrative, this Christian faith we have, it has history at the center of itself. And uh, it all started, I guess, you know, when we say the, the truth, and the Word became flesh. And so whenever we look at the very nature of uh, modern technology there, of John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so many of us would say, well, did that really occur? And again, we have history to help educate us. And uh, I guess lastly, it's just one of those uh, this items and opportunities for us to say, uh, I've seen it with my own eyes. There's, there's evidence that things occurred that are true. We don't necessarily... I never saw George Washington, but I believe that he was the president. I never saw Jesus Christ, but I have more than ample evidence of him historically, typically, than we do of many of our modern things that we do believe in. So, any thoughts on any of that? Didn't get much open, I guess. So, uh, another thing that we have for church history that I want to point out, that it's an opportunity that we're part of that history. And that uh, it can be both educational and a tremendous encouragement. Whenever we see the uh, founding fathers of our country that we're not trying to specifically say something about our, uh, their roots. They were founded in their Christian upbringing, many of them. And if you go back to our beliefs, it's just, uh, it's just a, an example of God's faithful dealing with his people. And that's constantly recorded in the scripture and in other works. So one of the things I think was interesting is whenever we see the example of when uh, uh, Moses received uh, those Ten Commandments, he basically went out, and in Deuteronomy, it's talking to uh, the Israelites and says, remember all the way in which the Lord has led you. And so although that's not us today, he was telling them they needed to start remembering and have a historical knowledge of what was going on. But if we look in the Psalms, I think this one is definitely a lot more applicable to be forward-thinking in the fact that Asaph recorded, and make it known to our children in Psalm 78, and they should, that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. That, that, that Psalm's a good warning that we don't want to be like the past and forget that. And uh, it's firsthand for them, and it's still firsthand for us. So, I think that uh, we can think of church history as a lens for our beliefs, and oftentimes uh, we can look at how they responded to things and, and see it coming forward into our own lives. And so it illuminates, clarifies, oftentimes it provides context, and uh, for many of us that was how we established our groundwork was how did uh, how did someone else deal with this and if we don't look back to them frequently we will see a heresy emerge that we've already dealt with and if we're in our own little box and we're not looking historically backward 
to see how it was dealt with. Some rather nasty things can occur. So, yes. Uh, there's an, a quote from an ancient writer, and I had it written down. I can't find it where I had it stored before. But the basic summary of it is, unless you know where you came from, then you don't know where you are, and you can't see where you're going. That's the value of studying church history for Christians. When we look at the history of the people of God in Scripture and then in the early church and through to, you know, up to today, and don't remind ourselves of the experiences and the lessons learned, then we're going to repeat those mistakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a big safeguard against error. So you can see where you're going if you're if you are basically repeating some of the errors of the past, then you're going to take those into the future and continue, you know, just getting off course. And uh, so that's the, you know, the value of church history. And so uh, when we talked about it being a lens, a lot of times church history is a magnifying lens, and so. In that ability to safeguard against us in, in heresies, we find a lot of new heresies masquerading as old ones. And uh, at, throughout the course of the, this, the discussions, I think I would like to try and highlight and discuss what we see there. Because it is rife in our nation today to have near cult-like things crop up. New, the new thing is frequently the old thing rewrapped with a, a new or higher price. So, uh, and lastly, I guess on the on the basic why it would be is uh, sometimes we just need another example. Uh, it's one of the things I really liked was that history supplies us with both mentors and examples, the good guys and the bad guys. If you don't have a good book, you can always turn to an autobiography or a biography, I guess only a couple of them wrote their own books, but a biography of our church fathers. There are a ton of them available, and Ligonier puts out quite a few of them, and we may have some in the library, but I've always found it nice to, uh, if you're a fairly avid reader, to occasionally throw in one of those between books just to break up your, I'm a little bit of a science fiction nerd, and so I like to, to... bring myself back from somewhere else by occasionally going through that. So um, so by going through this, I think it helps mature us spiritually. I think it helps us have a uh, heartfelt supplication to the Lord. And I do think it will help us revive his church to continue um, a greater and deeper understanding of the church. So... Uh, this week we're hope we're going to include a couple of uh, people of note and groups in particular that have that. So, what is your definition of the word church? They called out. Called out. Is it uh, assembly. assembly? All right. That's that Greek word uh, is uh, ecclesia that is specifically always cited. But uh, if you went to our confession, it in the 25th chapter talks about both the Catholic and the universal church. It would probably be better for me just to read this than to try and uh, summarize it. 
So the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, or are shall be, gathered unto one, under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And then the second section talks about the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal, under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion, together with their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And I guess one of the things I wanted to inquire about was, um, when you think of the church, do you think of, I think most of us do, people out, uh, people within the called elect only, as we described, or if you're talking outside of our building, frequently the church is more than that. There, uh, some. It's really funny because you get that little conversation of, is the church a place? Is it something you do? Or is it the people within? And so, I mean, it's clearly focused on the people. Right. So, I mean, speaking to strangers on the street. Oftentimes it's a building in, in Rome that we need to pay for, or it, sometimes the church is a. Uh, is even just a group, a denomination, but we we know that it's it's obviously the body elect. And so uh, there there were uh, questions that arose in one particular case that highlights some of the differences in the fact that. Do you think that everyone that we're bumping shoulders with includes the nation of Israel in that church? I'm sorry, was that it was more of a question. Like dispensationalists would talk differently about the church than we might. And so knowing a little bit about that, I think later will uh, will help us in that in that actual group. So when did church history begin? All right, Adam. So that's it. And, and when was it pronounced, though? And if you look in Matthew, we have our Lord basically in Matthew sixteen eighteen telling us, I will build my church. And uh, Jesus came into the world to die as the Savior of his people and to build his church. And so it's kind of interesting to me that we frequently uh, think of a certain... Thing as being the church, and in my mind, it's Jesus Christ's elect. It's it's the elect, but through Him. And so, I was going to focus on the historicity of the fact that back then in Acts, in the first chapter, it starts off specifically by Jesus telling His disciples that there'll be witnesses, and they were in Jerusalem, and then they later went through Judea. They uh, carried their information into Samaria. There was also in Acts two. Uh, at Peter's sermon, we basically have Jews and proselytes getting that information at Pentecost and going out forward throughout the area. And um, I see now that this is an older version there, but quickly we'll hop over there. There we go. And so basically Acts uh, takes us through 20 to 30 years as it records the promise that Jesus had stated there, I will build my church, 
and it being fulfilled. And so, whenever we look at the, the order in which things occurred to me, that was somewhat interesting to the Jews first, and then to the Samaritans, and then on to the Gentiles, and, and the fact of Peter preaching to them in Acts 10, and ultimately culminating somewhat in, our, in the book of Acts in Rome itself. But outside of the scripture, we have evidence of other apostles' travels. Uh, Thomas was uh, perceived as being traveling as far to the east as India. And today, there's still uh, groups that are part of the Mar Thoma Church, or the St. Thomas Church, that have their roots based in that uh, largely older uh, variant. You know, it's I just was looking at a map. If you haven't ever seen the Travels of the Apostles, I encourage you to go find a map of that and see where all the apostles ended up preaching. It's just remarkable how far in less than 30 years, you know, after the death of Christ, we have like 60, 30 to 60 years of this tremendous travel. And so... Yeah, you can get you know, some of that in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, some of the stories that were not in Scripture of some of the apostles, a lot of... Some of that is based in legend, just the old, just old church tradition thing, but, you know, some of it can be a little bit more historically verifiable, but not all of it is. But it's kind of the... Yeah, the first two centuries are really down. difficult to find specific <clears throat> evidences of uh, outside types, but uh, as you get to the fourth century, it becomes much more, he said this, as a second and third generation record things well all that are called are the elect I agree are part of the church and so from from Adam onward but specifically I, I think in the we talk about history it's interesting to think about it literally the organization of the church that Jesus founded was that moment whenever he was establishing it in Peter and saying from here forward you guys are going to be taking this information and spreading it throughout the globe. And so we have... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I mean, I, I, I went through a, an iterative cycle of my own mind of saying, okay, were, was Adam and Abraham, Isaac, are these guys in the church? Well, the, the elect, I believe they were. But that's where the dispensational bend I was trying to work through was coming from in the fact that they were originally saying that there were two different graces and that there were two different you know, dispensations of and so it's hard to define that without using the same word yeah, in terms of the fact that uh, the, the people of God prior to Christ's coming first coming uh, see all throughout the Old Testament they're referred to as the congregation of Israel that's the term that becomes the Greek becomes you when they started writing Greek and they went to Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they translated that word to ecclesia, mm-hmm. which becomes the term for our church. So we are the congregation. If they were the congregation of Israel, we are the congregation. It's the same group of people, but there was a change in the, the and it is a good word, administration or dispensation of the covenant of grace. We ended when Christ came, he ended the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace and began the Christian administration of the new covenant. And, and that's and why that's the difference. And that's why I think it's so important, though, to be able to 
if you've never dabbled in that water, to try and at least see why there is a concern. Because I hear it all the time. People saying we just need to send some more money to Israel to, to get that nation back so we can get on with it. There, there's a, a large group in our area. I mean, that's, that's kind of where they're, uh, they're headed. But it's still interesting to me, again, how we got here. And so um, some, of those, some of those heresies that I thought we would touch on have been around a long time. We, we looked at uh, in the, the Arianism that I'm not sure if you guys uh, recall. Uh, I'm sure some of us. Do we, do we know what, uh, what the Arian conflict was about? Come on, Wayne. It, it's the one where that God created Jesus. And so that's, I, on your little syllabus that I try to kind of throw out there, I, I put some not specific words hoping to make people think about it. But, uh, Which is why we have now the Nicene Creed. And really, when you look at that, that uh, same heresy is alive and well today. They come knocking on your door usually once a year, not the Mormons, they're the Jehovah's Witnesses. And those fellows, they're still saying this. They, they actively believe it. And so that modalism uh, that is part of our, uh, this is not modalism, but it's, that's another one that we'll be talking about, but that, that not correct view of God is all over the place. And so, as Wayne said... It causes all kinds of salvific issues if he's not God. So, so uh, you know, you look at uh, today's form of Arianism, we also see that uh, it's all rampant in our current materialism and our humanistic philosophy. If there's no supernatural realm, then uh, Christ doesn't have to be anything more than just a good man. It's an idea of that historical real incarnation that's an embarrassment to anyone that doesn't believe in the scriptures as being truly divine and inspired. Well, you, you, the, the one thing you got to remember, though, Arius knew the scriptures. And it's like uh, it's attributed to Luther was, as every man reads the scriptures, he finds his own pathway to hell. That's why understanding the history of the church, understanding how they came up with, like the Nicene Creed, Houstonian, all these things that we recite that a lot of churches say we don't need it is that they are based on scripture and it does take a lot more than just reading your Bible uh, to really to understand what, what happened and why. Because there were heresies at the time that uh, Paul talks about mm-hmm. and John talks about you know, if you don't believe that he came in the flesh yeah. you know, well, I was going to say, the, the one thing that was funny is if you look for a, a, a health and welfare or prosperity gospel, it was spoken of in Corinthians. And so we, we, have, we have this the same cycle repeating, but uh, it's, it's interesting how popular some of them are. And uh, Marcionism was one of the ones that I always found was uh, very interesting in the fact that that was 
that there were two gods, or that one of the gods in the Bible was was the uh, the good guy and the other was a bad guy. But we basically, one of my fellows that I, I will talk about next week will be Polycarp, and uh, we we basically see this fellow most of most of his efforts were to get rid of this Martian fellow that that, that pretty much used, took a penknife to his to his scripture and took out all the most of the Old Testament and portions of Luke and other pieces that he didn't like the parts that made God not loving and if you look at today's uh, universalism it's still rampant I mean people are constantly yep can, can you back up uh, just like one minute um, you, you made a reference to uh, a problem in Corinthians no the prosperity the prosperity gospel. Do you have that passage? The one that I didn't record down. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, you know, that one I can... I, it's really just... I'll, I'll have to go back and find it. I did not record that one as an example because it wasn't called out as a prosperity gospel. But, but Paul is talking about the fact that they're materialistic and they're not sharing with each other. And there's, there's quite a bit of... Uh, that currently going on today in churches, and so, but um, so uh, again, whenever we look at about 144 A.D. is what they kind of round out his time. He affirmed that Jesus as a savior, but he rejected the Hebrew Bible and the God of the Old Testament, and so uh, he said the God of the Old Testament was a lower God, and uh, that the New Testament God was the all-forgiving God. And so again, Polycarp was not his fan. He, uh, he actually gave him a, a pretty impressive title of being the firstborn son of the devil. So that's like the, uh, that's a pretty, uh, it's not a position you want to hold. But, uh, and so uh, we, we look at the, the, this example today. There, there's a fellow that uh, is in Atlanta that was accused of being a Marcionite, and basically, uh, I really do think now that he's walked it back sufficiently that he's he's no longer quite there. But he had this unpleasant term of saying he wanted to unhitch the Old Testament from from the Christianity, and so I think any time you you do that, you pretty much are causing problems. And so his his last name Stanley, but uh, but again, he's he's pretty much tried to. Back, walk that, walk that back a little bit, and so. Uh, but I don't think he's the only one. We have lots of uh, universalists and, and and people that are basically trying to imply that this dualism is a thing, and it's all over the Eastern religions. Whenever you try to to see that, and so. Uh, no, it's right there. The the fact that uh, we see today people that are around us wanting to try and claim that our God is the same as the other gods, that the God of the Quran is our God, or that um, even, again, the universalist, it's not the same because of our Trinitarian view. And if you did talk to a Muslim and truly explain to him what your view of God was, he would be offended because of their view of how God does not have any... It's... it. The one or two times I've actually done it and and went there, they were like, no, that's not the same God. And so I was surprised to see 
our culture is so trying to uh, to join the two at the hip. But um, those people today that we're seeing there, I was surprised that they're probably, it's the Apostolic Pentecostal Church. Have you guys ever heard of them? There's like 30 of them in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. They're, I was surprised at how many of them were, but they're a modalist, and like T.D. Jakes is not a part of that group, but of that mold, where his uh, embracement of the Trinity is pretty short-lived if you go read his... Uh, yeah, there's a broad movement among the Pentecostal movement called oneness Pentecostalism, mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah. it incorporates and a number of different, like the uh, United Pentecostal. Pentecostal Church, UPC, yeah. <clears throat> which there's one out here off the <laughs> access road before you turn on Brown Trail and come to our church. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, they're, basically it's Unitarian. They, you know, it's the Holy the God. The way I break it down, I boil it down to. They believe that God was the Father in the Old Testament. God was Jesus or manifested himself as Jesus in the New Testament. And now, since Jesus ascended, the God manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. And so Yeah, they like the word manifest. It's the one guy showing himself in three different costumes. They don't they don't I mean specifically I think they got in trouble for calling themselves uh, the person of, and so they said, Well we use the word manifest instead. And uh, and get by, yeah. but uh, but again, uh, in the American church, I looked at uh, one of the things I enjoyed was was watching this charismatic uh, movement appear throughout there, and uh, I think that those are those are interesting again denials of a historical truth that someone basically went sideways on and and, and left her left to depart on. Again, it's just a lack of concern for church history and what the fathers, our fathers, have taught and passed on to us, which is what, in one of the epistles, it says, you know, take what I've taught you and pass it on to faithful men who will teach others also. That involves receiving something from the church in the past generation and retaining it and preserving it and passing it, passing it on intact to the next generation. And that's what you have that failure, that breakdown when you get into these groups that, well, we we're we're broadly Protestant, we're not Catholic, therefore all that Catholic stuff we don't need to bother with that, and we're going to figure it all out for ourselves. And then you begin repeating those errors, like modalism. Yeah, but I mean, there's there's lots of uh, early authors that you know we we will be talking about uh, that. Their writings are, are not divinely inspired, but they're remarkably accurate because of the proximity to the people that taught them. I mean, when you look at, again, Polycarp or Arrhenius, they were <coughs> disciples of John and as disciples of Christ. And so that's pretty close to the source material whenever you have the fellow that says, no, I really did walk with him and I really did see him somehow feed us with those fish. I just think of the uh, impact it has on me and how much more of an impact it might have had on them. And uh, one of the things that I think this history gives us again is sometimes some strength for our backbones. Those martyrs, whenever they were called to account, did not bend. They did stand and oftentimes die for their beliefs. And for us today, I'm sure that people have said this for a thousand years now that, you know, it's 
the end times are here. Well, I'm not saying it like that, but I'm saying it's going to be as bad as it's going to be, and we as Christians should be prepared to always stand firm in our beliefs. And so, uh, what we're trying to, to do as well is, we'll start off next week with the early ages, and basically are the early years, and uh, I'll try to get within four, four or five weeks, depending upon how much talking we do, to the American church and then go on. Because again, I find a lot of interesting stuff in, in how we as a continent have changed the message Sometimes significantly, sometimes it's still very, very close. But, uh, but uh, I think we all know a lot about the Reformation. I don't know that all of us have done a whole lot of study on those times between the early years of the Reformation or the times from the Reformation to the shores of America. And so, again, we'll, we'll talk on that. Is there anything that you guys are like, hey, I, I really do love this part of history that we should consider uh, making sure we embark on? Apostles' Creed and the uh, Athanasian Creed both were combating and putting rails on people's beliefs in that in that modal or that, mani- that three manifestations of God. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, one thing you know, I think that, that people can confuse, us, especially people who, 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 who see this word "creed." All that is is the Latin word, actually, it's "credo," for what do you believe? Every time you make a statement of faith or explain to somebody what the Bible means or what do you believe, you are basically stating a creed. That's all you're doing. Uh, Jesus is Lord is considered one of the first creeds of the New Testament uh, pronounced by Peter. And there are creeds throughout the uh, scriptures. The Shema, uh, the Lord is one. That is a creed. It's a statement of faith. And so all these people who get all crazy about you know, the Apostles' Creed, or this creed, or that creed, the question is, are those creeds scriptural? Is there scripture there to back it up? It's just like when you go out and witness to somebody and you start explaining what you believe about this Jesus, can you back it up with scripture? And unfortunately, a lot of people just take that as, well... You know, that's a long time ago. Uh, we don't use this word creed. You know, we don't speak Latin. We pray out loud as a dead language anyway. So, but it is a creed every time you start speaking about Christ and what you actually believe. That's that's all it is. Well, a lot of these churches that are 
know Creep at Christ. If you go on their website or if you go to their information center, they have a what do we mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's yeah. just their creed. The only what they really mean is we don't like old creeds. We don't want stuff that's older than our pastor. <laughs> which is which is which is frightening and, and you know gives birth to a lot of the stuff that you were talking about because when you have only one generation of information to work from, you can't eliminate that thought because you only have one body of understanding. Whereas, you know, stuff like the Apostles' Creed is thousands of years old, you know, and even, you know, our confessions are, you know, hundreds of years old. We've had millions of eyes look on these and compare them to scripture and say, this is a faithful representation of that. Because, you know, saying that I don't I don't have a creed is like, you know, telling somebody if they ask you where you live, I live in America. Well, if you're in another place, that makes sense. But if you're, you know, if you're in Texas and you say somebody asks you where you live, and you say America, you've just given them far too much information to be useful. Yeah, I know you live in America, but where in America? It's the same thing. I understand you believe the Bible, but what do you believe it says about X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. And that's when things actually become specialized and specific to what you believe. Yeah, and it's oftentimes just beneficial for baptismal purposes and for joining a church type purposes to be able to succinctly say I actually do believe what you're saying because you certainly don't want to take someone in and in fact that was when John was talking about the oneness Pentecostals there was a Pentecostal movement the Jesus only movement where they don't believe in the Trinity because that their uh, ecstatic speech and healing was found in the uh, in the name of Jesus only and so that particular group left, uh, it splintered from a semi, I mean, it, unfortunately today we have this really weirdness of, is this an orthodox belief or not? And there's so many splinter groups nowadays that you're like going, well, the other one was more orthodox? But, uh, and so that's why it's important to, again, have, I came from a non-confessional background and it was very interesting that I tried to just as you said write down my own this is what I believe in our first website we created you know they said well just slap up there what we believe <laughs> and I'm like shouldn't someone more qualified possibly be doing this I mean I'm the web guy and basically uh, you know that was an early an early uh entry into that, but I love the fact. Do you think some of that's because I mean, clearly you may have already said this already, but in my slow brain the new church kind of that's trying to reach this generation thinks those things sound old it's not going to be it's not going to be appealing to people. My family's freaked out that we're important. That's an off-putting word. I mean, creepy, that's an off-putting word. It sounds cultish. Very, well, if it's not cultish, it sounds very, yeah, very particular. Well, it is also in the age, the present age, where everything is feelings based. So now you are maybe offending my feelings. Well, I love some of those heresies. We got some of those to talk about where it's about the feelings. Yeah, but it is like everywhere you go now.
Wayne? Well, and, and, and one thing I remember about these old creeds, uh, creeds change. You, you know, they are secondary to scripture. Uh, you know, we talk about our Westminster Confession of Faith, Larger Short of Catechism. Uh, we consider those secondary to scripture. The Westminster Confession of Faith has changed. Uh, it changed back with what we now call with maybe the American version versus the original from 1647. Uh, there was another change uh, in the uh, late 19th century uh, that the Presbyterian Church USA did. We don't accept a lot of that within the OPC. Uh, I mean, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed changed. It was a baptismal creed and uh, descended into hell was something that was added later. The, uh, the Nicene Creed that we recite is not actually the one that originally was written in Nicaea in 325. It's actually one that was amended in, I believe it was like 381 in Constantinople. So creeds can change. You just can't change scripture. That's the only thing. And, and do they really comply with what scripture says? Is there a good argument for doing these creeds based on what scripture says? And I think that kind of holistically rounds it back to the idea that history is our lens. If we don't have that, we are truly looking at, if you just gave me the Bible, it is a, a beautifully deep and wonderful book. But if I have absolutely no other knowledge at all, I can find my way into a pretty weird rabbit hole sometimes. And so by having that lens, it does help us, okay, that guy went down that road already that I was thinking of, and it led to here. And so, it's not possible to not have a lens. Yeah. You will bring a lens to it. Yeah. It just may be the wrong one. Yeah. That's why I think it's interesting. The Bible, basically, at its inception and throughout all the different years that it's been written and pieced together, it is both creed and narrative. Like, how are the doctrines that it presents worked out? In other religions, you get creedal statements with no history whatsoever. There's no context. And so you don't get to see how people and times work these things out. Well, here with the scriptures, we get to see it worked out through Adam, through Israel, through the early church. We get to pair along with those experiences to help us grasp and understand. I imagine you'll get to this when you get to the American part. Um, but part of the problem, I think, with today's culture and youth and whatever is they didn't have to fight for the creeds we honor today. So there's no work invested. So instead of it's just, I can read it and it's just out there, but I have no context on how it impacts my daily life. It's just there. And so you know, in normal teenagers, whatever you want to call it, cultural stuff going on, you challenge the authorities that are presented to you because you want to think, you know, think well, I have a better way. I have a better idea. I think I can do this differently. And so a lot of that gets played out just in the normal context, unfortunately, of religion to say, well, I have a different belief. I think this can be done differently if we push the creeds and the, the people who fought for the early church history, if we could push that aside, I think I can do it differently. All right. Well, I, I, again, I appreciate any in, in discussion we have. I, uh, I, I think the topic and subject is of a great deal of importance to us individually, and um, and as a as a church itself, I think it's also wonderful to start um, 
just enlarging and deepening all of our understandings. So thank you for the uh, your patience today, and we'll, we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the gift you've given us in your word and your opportunity for us to know your will in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our resolve through your spirit and give us the ability to worship you correctly in the coming hour. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.